This week and next week will tie in. It's, a, it's very much a two-part sermon. Um, they stand alone, I guess, to a degree. Uh, but the fullness of what we look at this week, you won't get until we're done next week. Everybody enjoy the midweek thought this week. What midweek thought? I wrote a great midweek thought. Wrote an absolutely wonderful midweek thought uh, dealing with a question I've been asked numerous times. How can I know if I'm really a Christian? Or how do you know if so-and-so is a Christian? If you look at me, I'm a pastor. You'd like to assume I'm a Christian. But can you really know? Can you guys really know if, if I'm a Christian? Right? So I wrote a really good midweek thought on this, which comes from the text we're going to be working in today, Acts 13. And I said to Laura, is this going to really confuse people? Is this going to be too deep for a midweek thought? And I said, no, let's just send it. And we got it loaded. Ding, wouldn't go. Try it again. Ding, it, wouldn't, it would not queue up to go out. Finally, by the third time when the computer started fritzing, Laura says, you know, maybe I'm not supposed to send it out this week. It was good. It was good. What we're going to do is build to that question next week. Perhaps the most important question any person will have to answer, and one I'm convinced most people who profess the name of Christ um, struggle with horribly in the sense of there are many people who assume that they have called on the name of Christ and are saved who are not, and there are many who have called on the name and wonder if they truly have. We're going to build to that next week. But before we can build to that, what we're going to have to do is look at the sermon that Paul preached in Acts 13 that leads up to that. So today we'll be in Acts 13. Uh, we'll take it from verse oh, 13 through 41. Let me set the stage of what's going on here. Uh, remember, we have the first missionary journey taking place, Paul and Barnabas. Actually, if you notice the wording, it's Barnabas and Paul. Uh, Barnabas was the leader of this missionary journey. And you'll notice something happens here, and the names start to change. They went off to Barnabas' hometown of Cyprus. And most people in the back of their Bibles have these, these maps. Um, you know those ones back there that when you buy the Bible, you look at them like, oh, those are so pretty. And then you never go back and look at them again. Well, there's always a map in there of, of the missionary journeys. Um, sometimes you have three for first, second, and third. Sometimes you have one, whatever. Those are helpful at this point as we go through Acts, because we're going to be looking at Paul's three missionary journeys. So what you see is Paul left Antioch in Syria, went to Cyprus, crossed Cyprus. We had the, uh, the false Jewish prophet. They dealt with him. They left Paphos, and they head up to Perga. And that puts us into our text for today. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's John Mark. Remember the guy who went with him? Uh, it was his mama's house they were at when Peter got out of prison. And there's really no understanding fully of why he left them, but it did create conflict between Paul and Barnabas, which we'll see later on. And as you read Paul's epistles, you see that Paul and John Mark reconciled at some point down the road when Paul called for him to come to him, to, to comfort him. We'll get to that at some point down the road. But what's interesting here. As you look at these locations, for you and I as 21st century Americans, they mean very little. They, they, we can find them on a map, kind of like hop, hop, hop. Our traveling ability is very different. We, we go on, you know, you could pay good money and go on a cruise and go to these same places in luxury. If anyone would like to take me, I'd be willing to go. Um, but they're very enjoyable trips. You sit on a comfortable boat, you enjoy your time, you see historical places. But watch this. John Mark left them. And where did they go next? They went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. 
There's a guy named Alexander the Great who did that trip and talked about it being one of the most difficult journeys he ever took in his life. A conquering military man struggled on that. You know why? You cross over the Taurus Taurus mountain range. They're, They're rugged, they're high, they're dangerous, they're difficult. And there were robbers that would hide in the in their caves in that area, and they would attack people and beat people and steal from people. And as you read Paul's letters, he'll talk about the afflictions he, he went under as he went out to proclaim the gospel, and many of them probably took place on this leg of the journey. So perhaps John Mark was just a little bit chicken. Ooh, that's scary. I don't want to go. Heck, I'd probably go back with him. But these guys went through. They went on this difficult journey here. And then as they came through to Antioch and Pisidia, different Antiochs. There were many Antiochs in the time. They didn't go back home. It's a different Antioch. They entered the synagogue. Something strikes me there. Um, the peril that Paul would put himself in to, to share the gospel, to, to make the gospel known to as many as possible, versus how we share the gospel uh, on whole in our culture. We don't really risk life and limb. Heck, we don't risk very much, do we? We, we struggle with looking. I don't know. I, I, I don't know the last time I shared my faith. Paul was willing to die for it. And, just to think about that as we gloss over, I'll make this an encouraging sermon today. Who had it wrong? Was Paul crazy, risking his life and limb for the, the gospel to be proclaimed? Or are we missing something that he saw a little more fully than we did? I'll let you guys chew on that. Um, something to think about. Now leave that behind. Don't really think about it. So they come to the synagogue when they're at this Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, Paul goes and sits down there, which was his custom, <clears throat> And it says, after reading from the law and the prophets, Jews call that the Torah and the Haftorah, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. It was customary. Visitors come in. They invite the visitors to stand up if they have something to say. And they just happen to have a very unique visitor that day who always seemed to have something to say. Paul, do you have anything to say? Paul says, sure. And what does it say there? He gestured with his hands. This is a Jewish thing. We all... Jews like to move our hands when we talk. I, I, you know, I, I've changed a little bit. I don't move as much. But you'll see when I get going, my hands move. It's a, it's a sign of deep and mature faith in Christ, as you'll see through Paul. So whenever my hands move, just you know, praise God for me that I've made the all-star team of faith. And what we have here is Paul's first recorded sermon in Scripture. It's awesome. It's a beautiful three-part sermon. And as I unpack it, I hope it makes sense to you how, how clear that is. It deals with history, prophecy, and justification. Clear as day. And what he's going to do is he's going to give the old-fashioned, here's Johnny. You know, remember that, here's Johnny? Johnny Carson? I, I caught glimpses of it as a, a kid. My dad loved the show. Beginning, Ed McMahon would be in front on the stage, and they have this multicolored curtain. Ed McMahon would go, here's Johnny, and then the curtain would throw to the side. He'd kind of stumble through comically coming out. Well, what the title of this sermon would be is simply, here's Jesus. This is God presenting Jesus through Paul. So Paul gets up with his hands and says, here's Jesus, and he articulates it. We'll start with the first part, if my page turns. Verse 16 through 23. This is Paul presenting Jesus as a fulfillment of all history. There are no names in this. Would somebody like to read? Verse 16 through 23. Have at it, Renee.
Keep going. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Question for you. Why do we have history? Explain how we got where we are. Well, that's why we teach history. Why do we have history? Yeah. Why do we have history? I told you, I think too much. Why do we have history? Not why do we have history class. Why does history exist? Why do we live? Well, go back further. God caused it. We have history because God made us. Why did God make us? He desires to live in a relationship with us. Why do we have history? Because God desires to live in a relationship with humanity. You can disagree. That's why we're sitting in this setting. History is the unfolding of events in time. We have time and we have events because God created. And God created people so that we could live in an eternal relationship with him. My contention is that history exists because God desired to create us to live in an eternal relationship with us. And what you'll see here, and what Renee just read, is that God has perfectly, sovereignly, and uh, fully, it's synonym, 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 right, uh, orchestrated the events of history so that they point to Christ. Biblical history, world history outside of Scripture, is all perfectly orchestrated by God culminate in Christ, to point to Christ. Look at what happens here. Paul unpacks Jewish history. Jews knew their history. They were God's chosen people, a royal nation, a holy priesthood. Look at the verbs and the actor of the verb. In every verb that we see here, main verb, the actor is God. Verse 17, the God of this people of Israel. And the verbs, I've circled them, good luck keeping up, chose, made, led, put up with, destroyed, gave, 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 removed, raised, and brought. God has acted in history so that it would be brought to the point it is, the way it is, and it culminates in this one Paul is talking about named Christ. You all following with me here? If not, I'll just keep going. What Paul is doing is saying, people chosen by God who know your history well. Here is your history. You find the history in the, the Torah and the half Torah and as you read through the Old Testament scriptures. Paul says, this God of ours has orchestrated history with a primary purpose of pointing to this man we call the Christ, Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And all history points to and unfolds as a shadow to be fulfilled in this man who is the Christ. God chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay. He led them out. He put up with. He destroyed. Why? Because he had chosen this people to be the people through which the Messiah would come, who would reconcile a lost humanity to himself, to all who would turn to him and be saved. What Paul is doing is unpacking Jewish history. And he says down here, 
And what, that's Hebrew. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And he says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as promised. He brings history up to, up to David. See what I'm saying here? He takes the offspring of David, the seed of David, Jesus, and says, look back at this history that you know and look to where it points. Why did all this happen? Because the Christ would come. Why did I choose you? Because through you the Christ would come. Why did I allow this? Why did I bring you out of Egypt? Why did I save you? Why did I put up with you? Why did I do all of this? Because it all led to Christ. You see, God started history in the Garden of Eden. And all was good. And then it went really bad. But see, this didn't surprise God. It was part of God's perfect plan. He allowed it. And he worked from that time and continues through our time to point to Christ. For these people, it was in the first coming of Christ, and it will also be culminated in the second coming of Christ. But history exists because God made us to live in a relationship with him, and it all leads to, points to, and is fulfilled in Christ. That's the point Paul is making. Now stop and think about this, though. What an awesome God we serve who sovereignly controls every aspect of human history. Pearl Harbor. Why did God allow Pearl Harbor? Because he is glorified in it and is the, for the good of those who love him, and it culminates in Christ. Why does God allow people to win the lottery? Why does God allow tornadoes in Moore, Oklahoma? Why does God allow suffering in, in Rwanda? Why does God allow people to be born? Why, why does God allow everything? He's sovereignly in control of it. It will glorify him. It's for the good of those who love him, and it finds its culmination and fulfillment in the work of Christ. How? I can't explain all that. But what Paul says, in some things we can, as we look back at history, let me unpack them for you. And that's what he's doing in these first few verses of his sermon in chapter 13. He says, this Jesus who lived in history is the culmination of history. This God that we serve is sovereignly in control of all things, and he uses them for the good of those who love him. If you want evidence that Jesus is the Christ, simply look at your history. He's the culmination of history. Now, not only how awesome is God, how gracious is this God who controls all history. Why are we here today? Because we live in a time of present grace when God gives all people the opportunity to turn to him and be saved. You and I have the ability as Christians to go out and proclaim the good news because God hasn't called everyone to account yet. He's not called a final judgment yet because he's in control of history. Why does Monday come? If Monday comes, it's another day for people who don't yet know Christ to turn to him and for those who do to proclaim him. Stop and think about that. We live, we live, <laughs> you ever hear the expression people say comically, oh, I just, I just live in your world and trying to make do with it? Well, that's what we should say to God. You and I live in God's world. Our job is to glorify him in it. Or we don't yet know him to turn to him. Think about how flippantly and casually we take God. What would happen if we lived in every area of our life with the, casual, the casualness and flippancy with which we treat God? Imagine we'd be hungry on the streets, friendless, and in a lot of pain. Well, guys, this is God's world. You're just a guest in the house. He happens to be your daddy. If you've turned to him through Christ, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He loves you beyond your comprehension to understand. But history exists because God has chosen to reveal himself in history, to culminate in the work of Christ in history, and to give all people a chance to turn to him and be saved. Pam, with what she deals with. God has allowed that. Why? I don't know, but he's fully in control of it. Christ will be glorified in it. It will be used for the good of those who love her. 
everything we go through. What, what a comfort to know the, the awesome God that we serve. Paul declares to them, this awesome God that we serve also dwelt among you. His name was Jesus. He goes on from there. I had a printout. Perhaps I'll bring it next week. Perhaps I'll email it or perhaps you'll never see it. And I spent like an hour and a half working on it yesterday. It uh, deals with prophecy. You guys know what Messianic prophecy is? Old Testament predictions of the coming of Christ. It's what he's talking about here in verse 23 to 35. Diane, would you like to read that? Verse 23 to 35? I'm sorry, 20, take, it from, eh, take it from 23 again, we'll overlap. Paul's beginning to unpack Old Testament prophecies, saying the one promise who would come, the one who would have a forerunner, the one who would be born a certain way, the one who would live a certain way, the one who would die a certain way, this one has come. There are, guess how many Old Testament prophecies there are? Do I hear five? Do I have five and over five? Do I want to go ten? ten? How many Old Testament prophecies do you think there are? Go, go lower. There are a lot. Somewhere between 35 and 1,000. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament prophecies with a specificity that will blow your mind, and that's what I had to bring in today. I left it at home, and a printer wouldn't work when I went back home. And I'm, I'm sorry, sorry. Get a hold of yourself. I hope to bring them next week. They are given with amazing, amazing specificity, hundreds of years at times before the Christ came, of who he would be, how he would be, what he would do, how he would go, what would happen as a result. It would blow your mind. Illustration is used if you took the state of Texas, a foot deep, with silver dollars. Okay? You know how many silver dollars that is? I have no idea. I can't count that high. Paint one red and mix them all up. Blindly walk into the state of Texas, reach down. What are the odds you grab that painted silver dollar? About zero, right? The odds of one person fulfilling all the Old Testament messianic prophecies are greater than that, meaning more difficult than that. Guys, there is not a human being alive who can intellectually say that Christ is not Jesus. You understand that? 
No one can deny, based off an, an examination of the facts, that Jesus is the Christ. It's impossible. He's a culmination of history. He's a fulfillment of prophecy. You can't deny it in your head. It's impossible. No more than you can deny the existence of gravity. Why did God give us these prophecies? Why did God give us such clarity and specificity that Jesus was the Christ? Because God wanted to say, look how strong I am. Look how smart I am. Right? No. Because he knows how, how foolish and ignorant and blind we really are and weak and sinful and doubtful. Guys, God says, do you want to know that Jesus is the Christ? Remember the Gideon fleece thing? Let's just blow that out of the water. Let me give you such specificity of future predictions that it will blow your mind. And one by one, I will begin to unfold these for you. Born of a virgin, died on a cross, rose three days later, sold for the price of a slave. His garments were, were lots were cast for his garments. Bones were not broken. Side was pierced, buried with the rich, and on. And you look, you're like, what? Okay, well, well, I need more proof. You don't need more proof. No one needs more proof to know that Jesus is a Christ. They need to bow before God after being convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. No one has ever said to me and, and carried on the conversation, I don't think there's evidence to believe in Christ. Because my simple question is, well, what evidence do you have to say there's not? Well, I haven't actually looked, but I've heard. I say, so you're going to go off blind ignorance and deny Christ. Well, well, how about we look at the scriptures together and look at the historical and the prophetic claims of scripture. Well, you know, I'm kind of busy. Well, why don't you face the reality of this? You're denying something you know nothing about, and if it's true, your future is in peril. Now, faith is far more than intellectual assent. That's where we're going next week. There are people, a uh, guy named Judas, you may know, hung out with Jesus for about three years. You will not meet Judas in heaven. The devil will not deny any of the intellectual uh, supporting facts that Jesus is a Christ. You, if you sat down with the devil, besides being scared out of your wits, and you asked him, do you believe Jesus is the Christ? He would say, of course I do. What kind of stupid question is that? The problem is he hasn't submitted to the Christ. But Paul has laid out before these people, Jesus is a Christ. He's a culmination of history. He's a fulfillment of prophecy. So the logical question is for these people who are saturated in the, in the scriptures, in the law and the prophets, how could they not know this? You and I, I say messianic prophecies, right? Let's be honest. You're kind of like, um, you know, if I asked you to write down your five favorite messianic prophecies, Imagine we all start scurrying out of here. That's why I like you, Diane. <laughs> With the exception of us, and me simply because I prepared this this week, right? These Jews, they would know them. They would know them. So how did they miss it? How did they miss Jesus being the Christ? It's funny you should ask. Because in verse 27, it says, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. Their eyes were blind because they had suppressed the truth. They didn't want to believe, which is why they didn't believe. They didn't want to face reality. They had hardened their hearts because of their sin and denied Christ. And you know what blows my mind here? Their hardening of hearts and denial simply was used by God as a perfect fulfillment of his plan. We're going to kill this Jesus. God's going, I know you're going to kill him. It's part of my plan, you fools. We're going to destroy him. No, you're not going to destroy him. Jesus says to Pilate, if God didn't give you the power you have, you'd have no power. You can't do anything to me unless God allows it is what he's saying. Jesus knew Jesus was God. Pilate says, you crazy lunatic. I could have you killed. 
you can't do anything. You kill me, it's because my father allows you to kill me. You see that? These people who denied Christ. You, there's a world out there that hates God. Do you think God's afraid? Do we need to run like, oh, we need to help God? No. Chill out. God's got it. He's invited us to use us in the process. But God's got it. You want to deny God? You cannot. Listen to me. You cannot deny God for an intellectual reason. It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible if you are going to use your mind to deny the existence, not only the existence of God, but the reality that Jesus was God, is the Christ, rose from the dead, and will come again. You can't. Now the question is, how do you respond to these facts? Do you ignore them, suppress them, or fall before the reality of them? And here's what Paul does. He brings them to this, and he says in verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Here is the culmination. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The Jews were a sacrificial people. Leviticus 5.5, God gave them the opportunity to deal with their sin by confession and sacrifice. These weren't people who took sin lightly. Oh, uh, Moshe! I don't believe that God will keep us from heaven. If we try our best, he will let us go. No, these people didn't have this, this ignorance of uh, what we call post-modernity. They were floored that God gave them an opportunity to be forgiven. They understood sin and the grievousness of sin. They understood how God viewed sin because they understood who God is. You got that? We take sin so casually. It's how we treat God so flippantly. God, I know. You know what? Listen, I don't have time for you today. I got things going on. I got, I got you know. I, I should make a book of, of reasons, emails I've gotten, 99% of the emails aren't from people here, of why I'm not going to make it to church today, right? I've got some doozies. I'm going to make a book one day when I, when I retire from pastoral ministry. Some of these suckers are doozies. I can't see a Jew commanded to go to worship and sacrifice Leviticus 5.5 the way they are, saying, uh, can, you, can you let the priest know I'm not going to be at sacrifice today? Playoffs are on. You know, you didn't screw around with God. Oh, we're going to skip the Sabbath. We don't need it this week. I was reading in uh, Leviticus about a, um, you know, it's tricky when you read in a different Bible at home and then, then bring a preaching Bible to church. In Leviticus, oh, 25, 26, let's see if we can find it here for you. Mm-hmm. You just have to believe me. It's in there somewhere. You can dig it out. There was a son of a Jewish woman with a Hebrew father. And you know what he did? He got in a fight with an Israelite and he cursed the name of God. You know what God said to do with him? No big deal. Move on, you uptight people. God said take him out and stone him. You don't blaspheme the name of the Lord. You don't curse God. We have the Ten Commandments. 2410. I knew it was, yes, punishment for blasphemy. Thank you, Renee. You take the Ten Commandments, a basic principle of God's standards. And we're just culturally kind of like, oh, please. You know, shall not covet. Heck, you and I exist in a covetous society. That's where advertising comes into play. You know, you got it, I want it. Keep up with the Joneses. Shall not lie. Well, sometimes you have to lie to get ahead in business. Don't you honor your father and your mother? We do a good job of that, right? Shall not lie, steal, shall have no other gods before me. Hmm. 
Well, the Israelites understood the reality of that if you sinned, you were under the condemnation of God, and they had to atone for their sin day by day. Because you know what? You'd atone, you'd be forgiven, ha, and then you'd go home, and you would sin along the way. And the weight would press down upon you. Day by day, these people lived under this weight. And Paul says, the weight is gone. The sacrifice is given once and for all. Forgiveness for all sins, past, present, and future, is offered through this man who was God, Jesus the Christ. Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for any person under the name of Christ. The freedom, oh my word, I've sinned, but through faith in Christ, I'm forgiven. I'm no longer captive to sin. I don't have to wonder, uh, did I get my last penance done before it was too late? You guys see the beauty of this? A people who lived under the constant reminder of sin, being, being convicted of it through God's word, reminded of it through the sacrificial system, day by day, having to atone for their sins, always working it off. It all pointed to Christ. And Paul says, the Christ has come. He's revealed in history. He's fulfilled the prophecy. And forgiveness is through him, through no other name other than his own. We live in a time when people say, I don't believe that God would make only one way to heaven. My word, why would God make one way to heaven? Do you see that difference? You say, I don't think God would make only one way. You don't know God and you don't understand sin. Because this is a holy God that we serve. And why he would make even one way should blow your mind. Why he would get everyone, give anyone a chance to turn to him and be saved is beyond comprehension. That's what Paul came to deliver to these people. The message of the good news. It took place in history and you can know it with certainty. We dabbled in that on, on Q Place a couple weeks ago. What type of proof do we have? Paul says it took place in history. You'll see throughout the Acts, Paul proved and reasoned with and convinced and persuaded. He was dealing with facts. He was presenting facts. He pointed to prophecy. God graciously gave us prophecy so that we might see it fulfilled and know with certainty that Jesus is the Christ. And these aren't just facts to check off when you meet him and go to heaven. Jesus says, hello, welcome to the gates of heaven. Would you like to come in? I would. Here's a little test. It's got two short answers and an essay on the bottom. I'd like to know who you say I am, how I revealed myself, and what you like best about me. Good luck. You have 15 minutes. St. Peter will grade it. No! It's not intellectual fact assessments. It's bowing the knee before Christ and serving him, seeking to live for his glory and not your own, understanding who you were apart from God, a sinner corrupted, uh, unforgivable by your own works. There was nothing you could do. And God revealed himself in history, fulfilled prophecy, because he was culminating it all in Christ. And Paul says, he has come. Wow. Now that should blow your mind. Why doesn't it blow everybody's minds? Because, guys, our job is, is Christians in this world is very much like selling ice to Eskimos. They don't think they need it. But the reality is, it's not ice to Eskimos. It's living water to a to a parched people who are dehydrating to death. It's living food to a people starving to death. And God opens the eyes. We simply present the bread and the water. Our success isn't found. Paul's success wasn't found. And, you know, you'll see. And this is where we're going next week. I, I, I'll keep you till three if you want. It's not going to happen. Um, but next week, what you're going to see is when the facts are presented, what happens? Paul's success wasn't fill out a card, come on forward, sign up. We'll get you on the mailing list. Yahtzee, 7,000 conversions for Paul and Barnabas. No. Paul's success was done. He had proclaimed the good news. Now what happened should kind of scare the boots off of you. 
I'll give you a glimpse of it, and I encourage you to read it as we prepare for next week. You finish up chapter 13. Because when they left, the people begged for them to continue. You see that? And they, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. It was looking good. It was looking good. This was a, a revival or a street crusade. It was looking good. That sawdust trail was being worn out pretty good. It would have been an emotional high. But let's finish that off. Because Paul knew his success of mission in this, in this instance had been accomplished when the sermon had been preached. You and I are called to go out and preach a very similar sermon in word and deed. We know with certainty that Jesus is the Christ. He is the culmination of history, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the only one through whom salvation is offered. The more fully we understand this, the less casualness we live with God. The more humbly we submit ourselves to him, the more faithfully we walk before him in a lost world, the more powerfully our witness is because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you want to know what happens? I don't know. You see, we changed the, the seating a little bit today. That's intentionally. I, uh, <laughs> I, will, I will make this short, otherwise we'll be here till 4. When I came to faith, you guys have heard this story probably, and, and sat in the church in Columbus, Ohio, and was overwhelmed with the feeling that the majority of people sitting around me truly didn't know Christ. And I know now with an arrogance. I just don't know why God revealed that to me. Living in the, the world of the church, the American church, for a long time, it's, it's a bride of Christ. and it's, I would not badmouth the bride of Christ, though there are many false churches out there. But we've turned into an institution where we invite people in, we give a basic gospel presentation, and we call people to invite other people in and give them a basic gospel presentation, we become a country club. Jesus said, go out and make disciples. Paul and Barnabas put their life in peril to make disciples, not converts, disciples. You know what the difference is? A disciple is a convert who makes more converts. It's someone who falls before Christ, lives for Christ's glory, and leads other people to Christ. Called to be disciple makers, to go out and make disciples. One of the reasons I turned the table this way, remember we're sitting in those rows. We'll get back to the rows again at some point, because I want you guys to understand this. This is serious business that we're about incredibly serious business. And I want to sit this way because I want to be able to converse. I want to be able to build relationships deeper with one another so that we can be equipped. Because I will never get to the point where I'll say to you, bring them in, I'll evangelize them. Bring them in, I'll evangelize them. I can't preach a sermon without the gospel. But I need to re-evangelize us each week so we might be reminded of the wonderful words of Christ and the deeds of Christ and the love he has for us. But my challenge to you is to go out and invite people to come with you. But not so that I can have a shot at them. Mm -mm. So that the word of God can be shared with them. And then you can have a conversation with them. You see that? And we continue this. And as they come to faith or they have an interest. And, and they continue to grow. Let them fill the seats. Let us pack the rows. Let us move our facilities. Let us have a building. I don't care because none of that matters. What matters is the word of God is preached. And you and I are all equipped to go out and share that good news with others. Now I think. I I. I I wouldn't say I know, but I'm pretty close to I know. I think that what God is doing to us is being so gracious. He's giving us the opportunity to be fully what he wants us to be as his church. He's giving us the opportunity to grow in relationships with one another as we grow in relationship with him. 
to be equipped to give a reason for the hope that we have, to be equipped to go out and share the good news through the power of the Holy Spirit. I have seen more opportunities recently for myself arise to build relationships and share the gospel than I can understand. To the point last night I had a, um, an opportunity to, to interact with a guy who I swear was half drunk at the time, but said to me, and this speaks not at all to me as a person, but it's got to be God working. He says, i got to tell you, John, I'm so thankful to meet you because I want to know the truth. If you, can just, if you can just give me something to hang on, I'll hang on to it. I desperately want to know who God is. Where the heck did that come from? This is no awesome presentation. I'm giving to do it. He's half drunk. But what's happening, and I know you guys are having similar experiences because I've heard about them. The more faithfully and fully we walk before God, the more our minds will be blown. God doesn't need us, folks. He doesn't need us. We don't need to reach a critical mass of 500 to be effective. But he has invited us to be used for his glory to proclaim who Christ is. At times, there's risk involved. At times, there may be peril. But Paul took this journey and got robbed and beaten and had some struggles. And I don't think he's in heaven today going, oh, man, my back is aching from that trip. Mm. He's, he's rejoicing in the presence of Christ because you know that this guy got a well-done, good, and faithful servant. You know he got that well-done, good, and faithful servant. And each and every one of us can get it, too. And I know, I know that we're getting there. I know that we're getting there. But we're going to keep getting there. I'm going to keep pushing. And I'm going to push back if I get outside of Scripture. I'm going to keep pushing you all, and you all keep pushing me. Because we are called to go out into that lost world and present Christ in whatever way we can. To become all things to all men that some might be saved. Women and children, too. All right? And we do that with the certainty of understanding Jesus is the culmination of history. We serve a God who controls all aspects of history. Where's human responsibility fitting? You've got to come back next week. We serve a God who has revealed himself prophetically to us. You can't deny that Jesus is Christ. We have a certainty, an assurance that is beyond comprehension. It is beyond anything else we deal with in life that has certainty and assurance. And we have forgiveness through this one, through this Jesus, who we call Christ. Now, I know that doesn't blow your mind as fully as it should, because our minds don't function exactly like they should. But let's come before God daily and say, God, would you just show me a little bit more fully who you are? Will you help me understand a little bit more completely how much you love me, what you've done for me, what I have become, and where I'm going? Because you know we're living in the waiting room. Eternity is to come. You know Jesus is building that retirement home for us. It's not really a retirement home. It's the eternal home. He has, he has gone to prepare a place for us where we could be storing up treasures, where we're living for, and he's sent us to invite people to join him. Paul came to deliver that message to these people in the synagogue. He calls us to deliver this message in your neighborhood, over your telephone, to the people who you tend to cross paths with, through the relationships, through, through the gens, through the drunk people at the ball field under the lights, through, through the strangers that we work with who really shouldn't be strangers. Guys, this is an awesome God we serve. Next week, we're going to look at where this went, how people responded. And the basis of the question is this. How do you even know who's a Christian? And does it even matter? Let me close with prayer. I have a selection to play for you. And then I'll close with a benediction after that. Father, I, I thank you for the fact that you have chosen to reveal yourself in the way you have. All people know you exist, you tell us in Romans, by your creation. 
but the specificity with which you reveal yourself in Scripture, showing us history and prophecy. Hmm. Why? God, the, the love you have for us, the patience, the, <laughs> slow to anger and steadfast and abounding love, really begin to take on a whole new uh, level when we understand really who we are. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in a way we can comprehend, in a way that we can know with certainty, in a way that we can share with others in history, in prophecy, in scripture. We thank you for the fact that your revelation is examinable. And as we examine, we see the certainty of it, that every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. God, we get to look at your track record, and it's perfect. So as we look ahead at what you call us to, we have nothing to fear. As your followers, we know you are with us, that you fight for us. God, I just pray that you would use us mightily, that you would help us understand what it is that drove Paul and Barnabas across those dangerous mountains. Why didn't they just pray that you might send somebody else, that the Holy Spirit might just convict somebody in Antioch and save them the trouble? What is it that drove them across those mountains? I, I suspect it had to do with the intimacy with which they knew you. God, the reality is that no one in this room is probably ever going to have to face a perilous journey across mountains at the risk of life and limb. The perilous journey we face is across a beautifully mown lawn. It's to a table at a restaurant. It's to a bench in a field or a table on a deck. God, help us use these opportunities for your glory. Help us see people as you see them. Help us understand the work that you've called us to. It's not to save people. It's to let them know that you have made a way for all people to be saved. Help us understand that it's a process, as we'll see next week. It doesn't happen necessarily right away. But God, you've given us serious work to be about, not because you need us, but because you want us to have the joy that you made us to have. Father, bless this church for your glory. Use this church for your glory. Empower this church with your glory. Holy Spirit, we fall before you and say we are, we are here for you. We are to be used by you. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Convict us of sin. Empower us to remove that sin. Help us to walk in obedience to you. Help us to have the joy that you desire for us too. And I pray that you would populate this room that we are in now with soul after soul who has truly come to faith so we might encourage one another and go out and save more and more so that our fruit might bear fruit, so that we might hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant, and rejoice alongside Paul and Barnabas, and all the faithful men and women who you have used over the years for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.